The following program has some naughty language, so if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. It's Friday, February 4th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. To me, Olympic opening ceremonies are like Cadbury Easter eggs or team dance competitions on reality TV shows. If they were so good, we could have access to them all the time. But this opening ceremony, like the drones in Tokyo and the London Olympics, history of the world through England, it had its charms. Great use of video art. I like the stadium itself. And of course, John Lennon's Imagine. No Olympic ceremony is possible without playing the hopeful song that never pans out and doesn't describe at all anything about the Olympics. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. No countries. Well, now you tell me after the hour-long parade of nations. And they, like many of the nations, will be introducing Madagascar. Looking for their first medal. Madagascar. Madagascar, the world's fourth largest island, sending two athletes, both in alpine skiing. Oh, I love the parade of nations. Also, you hear the three announcers in the background with their three different versions of Madagascar. Can we hear that again? Madagascar. Looking for their first medal. Ah, the variety of human communication. I like the one weird fact about every country. I like the bizarre headdress. No, no. The indigenous lovely headdress from the skier from East Timor. I love strong opinions on obscure competitors like Latvia's skeleton athlete, Martin Dukers. Athlete like Dukers, three decades of dominance, yet not at the moment when it mattered the most to win that gold in the Olympics. We'll see if that changes. Geez, you went silver twice and still Mike Tirico's all up your ass. Tirico was putting entire countries on notice. Warm reception for Pakistan as the fifth most populous country in the world enters represented at the Winter Games by one athlete. So a nation of 238 million represented by one. Whew! That shade could help Pakistan cool down. Mike, they don't play cricket on ice. What do you want? Mike Tirico on edge. Maybe it's the possible war that's brewing. NBC noted Putin was in the building and brought in an expert to say that China won't be happy if war upstages the Olympics. True dat. And then Savannah Guthrie adds, Certainly a, a lot of geopolitical experts will be watching the dynamic carefully between Putin and Xi Jinping. Let's move to Uzbekistan. And move on to Uzbekistan they did. And on and on and on. In alphabetical order. In an alphabet with no alphabetical order. The countries were ranked essentially by the complexity of pen stroke in writing their names. Who knew? I did. Because I watched the Parade of Nations and learned that an Orthodox Jewish woman from New Jersey is competing for Israel, and somehow Denmark has only ever won one cold medal. I said to myself, gold medal, but I decided to say cold medal. Because in the Olympics, let's call the gold medals cold medals. Oh yeah, there may be a war soon, which would piss off Chairman Xi, but imagine there's nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. China is on board with at least one of those things, and let the games begin. On the show today, they say political parties can't agree on anything, but I spiel about a bipartisan activity, gerrymandering. And on the show Monday and Tuesday, we will have Senator Al Franken. But first, 
a choreographer and the artistic director of an interesting theater work I saw, Raja Feather Kelly attempted a restaging of Dog Day Afternoon from the perspective of the trans woman who really was the pivot point throughout, though she was mostly ignored in the movie. Feather Kelly discovered that hard work and pure intentions were not enough to avoid tumult and acrimony, but perhaps that's the price of ambitious art. Raja Feather Kelly up next. Raja Feather Kelly is a choreographer and a dancer who, in a couple of years, I predict, will win a MacArthur Genius Grant, and you could say you heard it on the gist. So I recently saw a stage work of his called Wednesday. It's a retelling of the 1975 movie Dog Day Afternoon. You may remember Dog Day Afternoon. Al Pacino starred as Sonny, who took hostages in a Brooklyn bank in order to pay for what we would now call gender affirmation surgery for his lover. Indeed, it comes out in the movie, it, it was actually his wife. And it's all based on real events. What Feather Kelly wanted to do was tell the story from the perspective of Liz Eden, the trans woman who was played by Chris Sarandon, a cis man in the movie. But along the way, Feather Kelly ran into some snags. Members of his troupe pushed back on some of the messaging. That's fine, he thought. I'm going to incorporate that, that pushback, in my work. I'll even incorporate the fact that I got pushback. I'll feature the differing points of view of members of the cast about how and if we should be telling this story at all. And guess what? Some members of the troupe, I take it, quit. We're going to get into it. And it would seem that this is just judging by what the show actually says. There was a lot of disagreement, some productive, some not, in retelling this story, in honoring Liz Eden. So afterward, Raja sends out an email to everyone who sees the show and asks, what do you think? And so I, you know me, I take a little bit of leap of faith. I say, it seems like this gentleman wants to really know what I think. Since a main point of view of the show is who gets to tell a story, I told him what I, a straight white cis fellow, thought of the show, which, to express to you, I think I said it was interesting and ambitious, and I thought flawed. Raja responded very graciously. At length, we decided let's do a version of that conversation on the air. Here it is, and here he is now. Thanks for bearing with that long introduction, Raja. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I might restage this one. So how did you first encounter the work, Dog Day Afternoon? I watched it in college. As I say in the show, which is a documentary on its own, yeah. I was in college, friends of mine were studying film, and I, I was getting very excited by that. And someone, I can't remember who exactly it was, but there was this kid, Dave, I think his name was Dave. And he's like, let's watch this movie. It's like, if you don't know this movie, you can't continue watching movies. So I watched it in like a, you know, empty classroom in college and was blown away. I was like, oh, this is, I get it. It's, it's like, it's everything you want everything to be. I talk a lot about theater and performance being a thread that gets pulled and like, it never lets go. And that movie is that. Did you have thoughts about representation? I don't know if at the time that was a thought or feeling in the air at all. No, not, not nothing of that kind. I mean, I was very excited by seeing what I presumed at the time to be a gay man. I was like, oh, Chris Sarandon, like a gay man on TV, like, this is so cool. Did you think the actor was gay or this just his character? Both. Okay. Both. I mean, I always was like, if someone's gay, it's somewhere in there. You uh -huh. know, if someone's playing a gay character, it's somewhere in there. Like, and, and I was kind of convinced. I feel like 
what I know now as a trope, you know? So I think Chris Rennan did a fantastic job, but certainly used many tropes in order to get that character across, and I believed it. At some point, you have uh, a twin process. You say, A, someone should retell the story from Liz's perspective, and B, that person should be me. Tell me about that decision. Every time we go on residency, which is how we sort of start a work, we go on a residency that has a studio, and we live together for a week or two weeks and talk and get a bunch of information in the air. And I decided we're going to watch this movie. And I was like, that's when I started thinking about representation. Mm -hmm. I was like, isn't it interesting that this whole movie is based on this character that Chris Sarandon is playing? And yet Chris Sarandon's character gets maybe three minutes. Yeah. My thought was, let's recreate Dog Day Afternoon as a stage production, but from the perspective of the character of Leon I think it would be brilliant. I think so too. That's what I signed up for to <laughs> yeah, see it. Exactly. What you, it became was that, but also the process of creating that. Well, that came <laughs> because at some point when I started thinking through this, we started writing and then I discovered this is a true story. So when I started researching, so this is 2015, I said, oh, this is a true story responsibility flag, right? Mm -hmm. Normally we make things and it's either made up, we just make it up a what if story or it's about us. So that gave me pause where I was like, okay, so now I have to, re I have to even go even deeper because this is someone's real life. Right. Then I realized that it was a woman and not a man, a trans woman and not a man. And I said, okay, that's even more interesting. I have this connection to this character story for which I thought I identified with them because they were a gay man. And now I'm having this identification with this person and they're a trans woman. I found that to be beautiful in a sense. So I went for it. I said, great, we're just going to tell, we're just going to tell this woman's story. It's kind of a beautiful story. And that's when a little bit of the pushback started coming. Tell me about that. One thing happened to us as a company that is very rare, which is in one year, we got three major awards. It, it gave our company quite a bit of money, mm -hmm. money we had never seen before. The money was so good that like I got a salary and then I still had money to like pay people respectively. Mm -hmm. But it had to be for one project. Mm -hmm. So it was for Wednesday. And I was I, I thought to myself, I'm gonna hire more dancers for two reasons. One is I was like, we have this money, we have to give people jobs. Like that's my responsibility as yeah. a dance maker and a leader in our field. And so I knew that, but also it was brought to my attention that I had a company of all white people. Mm -hmm. At some point, someone's like, do you realize that all of the members of your company are white? To which I was like, that's not how it, that's how it looks, but not the truth. For example, Sarah in our company is, you know, half Latina, but mm -hmm. she looks, she, she appears as a white person, but no one would know that if you right. look at them, they're they all look white. Do you they're, think you're less sensitive to it because you're an African-American? I just don't think I care, honestly. I think what's what has been important to me is that people are willing to work the way that I want to work and that they're invested in the work. However, looking back, I'm like, I mean, and there's always been people in and out of the company. So in my mind, I'm like, no, there's, we've had like- In your mental snapshot of the company, there was never one where it was everyone who was white appearing. Never. Yes. Yes. I, I, I just it. think of all of the people and I'm like, what? That's so weird. And then I'm like, oh, right. I guess that's how it landed this year mm -hmm. when we started this project. And when I started thinking about why people left the company, I, I remember conversations where they're like, we're just not making enough money. So people started leaving the company because we just, you know, I couldn't pay them a living wage. And, you know, I don't know 
And I don't ask the finances of the people in the room, but it was very curious to me. And we say this in the show that I was like, it is a little weird that all white people are here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I see who donates to the company when we have our fundraisers. I see the last names. So like, is there something to where these people, these, the remaining white people, where they come from and what they're able to hold on to in order to keep them in the company when they're not being paid, when they're not being compensated the way you might be if you were in a bigger company. So I wanted more company members because I wanted to share this money. I was like, I have enough money to pay people well and have more company members and pay them well. And I should probably diversify my company in terms of sex, gender, all the kinds of expressions that exist. So never, ever have I ever had a company audition before. Okay. I am like the John Waters of dance companies. I'm like, if you're a weirdo, you can join the fucking <laughs> company. So that's how people find themselves in the work. And I'm like, I'm going to have an audition, which I also learned is kind of like, I have money. That's like announcing to the field. I have money. Uh-huh. I'm having an audition. Like, come get paid. So I did that. And I hired 13 new dancers, all different shades, sizes, and expressions. And I thought I was doing a really good thing, both for the story of Wednesday and for the field. Yes. And what I later learned, if we fast forward, it's like, oh, what I didn't realize is how much our process is pretty intense. Of like, I'm looking at people's lives, they're offering it up to me, I'm rewriting it, I'm reframing them. The, The work is a mirror both to the people performing and a mirror to the people watching it. And I didn't realize just how much of a kind of process-oriented understanding of a device theater company that I had created in the past, I guess at that point, nine years or 10 years. And so inviting people into that, I think they were all in shock, firstly. Like, oh, I'm here to play myself, Mm -hmm. which means I have to bring myself to the room, which means you're going to reinterpret me and serve it back to me, and then I have to be okay with that. Not okay with that. Wait, you're a Black queer male, and you're not actually making a show like about your version of Dog Day Afternoon, but you're going to tell this trans woman story, this person who you have no connection with. You're not a trans person. You're not a white person. No, but also I need a job. So I'm going to stay, but I don't like this. Were there specifically people objecting to, I don't like how you're presenting the message of this show. Yes. I think there were three major or four major issues that were brought to my attention. One was... I don't like the process Mm -hmm. and I don't believe that you are doing the process of this correctly, which is to say that there were people in the company who had no idea what transness was Mm -hmm. or what a trans person was like really. Yeah. There were people who um, perhaps didn't understand inclusion and equity. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and didn't understand their perhaps b- internal biases. And then there were people who were really at the top of their game of understanding what history is in the trans community, what it means to have an equitable process, what it means to have a lived experience, and were fiercely uninterested in watching people learn. Okay. Right. Like, I'm not, I, like, if you're making a, a, a show about a trans woman, you should know everything there is to know about trans existence. And I'm not going to sit around and watch you or people learn what that is. That is actually traumatic for me. 
that was maybe the biggest thing. Mm. And that sort of spurred the like the other tiers of of like, I don't actually just think it's right for you to do it. I think people are also scared. I think we were at a time which we're not not in now, where we're like cancel culture was a big thing. And we right. were like, if I'm a part of this process and you're gonna get canceled, then I'm gonna get canceled. So I'm out. I didn't know that. Yeah. I got, and you know, people listening to, I went through something like that. I don't know if you read about me, but I went through something like that. And so maybe people listening are like, oh, that's why Mike's interested. I honestly am not. <laughs> what I am interested in is, I mean, that is interesting, but that's not what I had, why I had you in. I'm, first of all, how many of the objections were presented in the show? Because I, what you're telling me, I came away, it doesn't surprise me. There were elements in the show that led me to believe that something like this happened. Yeah. So you did, re- even the people who walked, you, to some extent, represented their opinions Absolutely. in the show, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, in the end, I felt, I, I really, I wanted to be true to what happened. I also didn't, people left and asked for us not to talk about them. Mm-hmm. And, and it was also awful. You know, there was a campaign to defund me as an artist and to cancel our show. Did it? Did it gain any traction? No. You were just wor- just the but just the fact of it, it is worrying. Traction in my psyche. Yes, of course. I'm like, <laughs> I built this company from the ground up, and and I feel actually quite sincere about my efforts to do a good thing. Of course. And, and I don't think that means that I am doing it right, but I am certainly not intending to fuck people over or to do harm to the world. It's actually the opposite. And I understand that there's a bit of controversy over my desire to tell this woman's story who is not me and who I don't have a direct relationship with. And I also don't think that's a problem. Right. I think that's what we should be doing. I don't know what percent of um, the American population is trans or identifies. I've I've looked it up. There is a large range, but it's less than 1%. Who knows? Maybe once everyone feels free to identify how they wish to identify, it'll be, you know, somewhere near 10%. But if those are the only people who are allowed to tell the story, it just becomes quite unlikely that these stories ever get told. Right. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, I understand. I don't. I sit on both sides. I understand why. I don't think there was a problem with this company member saying, I don't want to sit here and be a part of this process where people are learning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my response was, okay, then you don't have to do this. And I think their response is, oh, so you're kicking me out, Mm. right? Like, you don't want to just fire all of these people and hire who I believe is the most the most appropriate people. To oh, tell this story. I see what they're saying. Like, yeah. So you know there aren't a lot of trans stories being told. I, as a trans person, should be able to tell that story. And now you're telling me that I don't have a place here. And I'm saying no. I'm not saying you don't have a place here. I want you to do this, and I want these other people to do it. And I'm interested in in this conversation. And I'm saying if you're not interested in that you don't have to do this. Right. And they're like, this is the only company that has ever hired me. And now I can't be a part of it. So like, you're a transphobic, you're homophobic, you are racist, you are a white supremacist, if you don't <laughs> support my journey to do this. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I mean, to be quite honest, you know, I've sort of learned and, and I've relearned that like when a company member brings an issue to me, I'm like, if that's how you feel, I support it. 
And so there was a moment where they're, they're saying to me, I think you're a racist. I think that you are transphobic. I think that you're a traitor. I think that you're a Ben Carson. I think that like my experience has been harmful and that this show is inappropriate. In, in an effort to not be defensive, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. I believe that that's how you feel. Right. And they're like, so I'm right. Yeah. So you're agreeing. You, you, you know, I mean, a quintessential script from Gaslight, I believe. Like, oh, so you believe you, so you are, so you're saying you admit it. You admit you, it. You are yeah. a racist. You are transphobic. You are doing something you shouldn't be doing. You just said that you understand what I'm saying. So you agree. And I'm like, no, I, I, I'm not saying that. I'm just you should, like, I'm not saying I feel those things, but if you are, let's talk about it. Right. And let's, let's get to the bottom of that. Well, you're like, saying, I don't want to fucking get to the bottom. Let's work out a way to accommodate your feelings within this project. And your and, truth. Yes. And essentially, they're saying, without putting words in anyone's mouth, there is no accommodation of that. Yeah. You know, within if the- If you understand this, it's Yeah. True. If you understand this and you have a bunch of cast members who still need to be taught, uh, then you don't understand exactly. it. Exactly. And it's- uh, yeah, it puts you in a very tough place as an artist. And it also, since the fundamental question of who gets to tell a story, if you have people in your midst grappling with that question and they have such an absolute definition, you can't pursue that question anymore. I can't? Well, that's what that would be the logical inference of what they were saying. Of who gets to tell the story? Tell the answer is only me. So yeah. shut up, Raja. Exactly. <laughs> I do think... In general, I mean, this question has been asked in so many ways, but I rarely come down with an answer other than who gets to tell whose story? The person who does it well. The person who does it by taking into account all the considerations, uh, respects all those considerations, and tries to reflect back so everyone hearing the story uh, can connect with it. So the number one example I use is Taylor Branch, a white man who won the Pulitzer Prize writing this trilogy of the King years. And without him and his scholarship and him telling the story, the world would be so much poorer for not knowing about Martin Luther King. Now, obviously it serves my purposes to cite this great Pulitzer Prize winning historian. There are some people who do it less well. You're giving me all these very subtle ways to think about that, other dimensions. But I still think that that's true. I think who gets to tell the story fundamentally has to be those who do it well. Some people will define, well, the only way to do it well is to have the person telling it reflect the demographics of the story being told. But, you know, I still think that's a, a limitation that I can't sign off yeah, on. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, what was something that became a, 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 a huge educational thing for us was this documentary, The Closure disclosure that came out in the middle of our process, which was created for and by the trans community about trans representation in media, right? So I think a part of this, this person's and other people in the company's issue around why it's not okay for me to tell the story is like the history yeah. of trans storytelling has been so bad yeah. that there's just a lack of trust on anyone aside from a trans Totally understandable, to right, right. And even in this documentary, there are trans people who are in disagreement. They're in trans, you know, as- So as who gets to make be, that documentary? Probably just a trans person. Yeah, though. yeah, but, but you know, but like, yeah. they're not all in agreement, right. thank God, yeah. you know, but also rightfully so, they're fucking people. Mm -hmm. They're people who are like, that's dumb, that's beautiful. I, I, and I think Jen Richards, who we feature in the show, 
for me, says exactly what you say and what I agree with. And she's like, it's just when it's clumsy, that's when it's a huge problem. It's clumsy. Do your fucking work. She didn't say those words, but that's what I felt like was calling out to me when I saw this. Like, don't be clumsy. Yeah. Be specific. Be clear. Raja Feather Kelly is the artistic director of Feather Theory. He is a choreographer and a and a theater maker, and as you have heard, just an interesting contemplator about some of the more interesting and pressing issues of the day. Raja, great to talk to you. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. And now the spiel. The state of New York just gerrymandered its congressional districts to within an inch of their lives. Okay, not an inch of their lives, but a city block here and a trip across a narrow bridge there. Even though Democrats nationally rightly point out that they're disadvantaged by gerrymandering overall, it is not a partisan phenomenon. It's just that Republicans win more state elections and therefore get to do it more. As the example of New York shows, the Democrat call for gerrymandering reform is like a call for arms control by a guy who brings a six-shooter to an artillery battle. I can't blame the Democrats. I mean, if I were an elected Democrat, I would refuse to gerrymander, and then I'd be an unelected Democrat. I'd eventually get a podcast and talk about gerrymandering. So I guess I just eliminated the middle, I don't know, eight years of that process. My philosophy is politics are for power. Use the power to advance your agenda. The Democrats did that, and that's fine. Just don't tell me about the inherent goodness or rightness of one party that fights against this tactic and the evilness of the party that upholds this tactic. Granted, Republicans do it more. If that's the point, you win. But just how the New York Democrats got their gerrymander on, that's interesting. Because in 2014, the voters passed a ballot proposal that would create a commission to combat the scourge of the gerrymander. Here's a commercial from 2014, lifted directly from some sort of good government public interest ad commercial warehouse. It's pretty rare that uh, you can actually vote a legislator out of office. I would say they're more interested in- We've got the plaintiff piano music while citizens list concern. 28 legislators have been forced out of office because of corruption and three more are currently under indictment. Democrats and Republicans are equally responsible. What happened to our democracy? And then the turn. On November 4th, we finally have a chance to take power back. And bright sunny music. Voting yes on Prop 1. For the new day till dawn. Balanced redistricting commission. No legislators or lobbyists can sit on the commission. It's the only way to make elections fair and competitive again. So vote for proposal one and we get redistricting reform and New Yorkers did that, but they didn't. They didn't get the real reform, even though proposal one was put into place exactly as written. Not much changed. Not a goddamn thing, really. Because the commission, the redistricting, let's draw the line commission that was appointed by the legislature, which was the source of the gerrymandering, and it had an equal number of Republicans and Democrats. So it was destined to deadlock. And when it did, who gets to draw the districts? 
the legislature, just like they wanted all along. I guess in hindsight, it's easy to say that this would happen. It's not like anyone at the time had been able to assess this commission and say, it's simply a proxy for the legislature. Simply a proxy for the legislature. That was Susan Lerner, executive director of Common Cause New York, one day before the vote in 2014. And if the legislature does not like what the commission it controls does, then the legislature can take back the maps, draw anything it wants, as the judge points out, without any limitation whatsoever. The judge was Justice Patrick McGrath, who also, like Susan Lerner, totally foresaw what would happen. And his ruling was that the word independent had to be stricken from describing this panel. The interview I'm playing from 2014, conducted by Brian Lehrer on WNYC, is fascinating because Brian had on two different good government activists, Lerner and a guy from Citizens Union. Both are fine people who want the best and aren't corrupt and aren't on the take. Uh, Both wanted a necessary reform. The Citizens Union guy said, yeah, we know it's not perfect, but I think it's a chance to get something done. And Lerner said, no, it's not. And the Citizen Union guy said, okay, let's not make the perfect the enemy of the good. And Lerner said, actually, you're making the useless the substitute for the useful. And she was right. She was 100% right. And she wasn't the only one who was right that day. Robert in Rigo Park nailed it. I actually was all excited about voting for the to do this because this is uh, will be great for the people. But this is like the the fox guarding the chip. Chi, uh, henhouse. It, it's henhouse. Chicken coop. So th- this is uh, totally uh, com- comical. Okay, we'll go with chicken coop. I'll take it. But the reason why I get into this whole let us say spiel is not to make a Democrats also point, but to analyze what Susan Lerner and Bobby the Chicken Guy wisely said. You never get a reform by asking people with power to give up power. That is a virtual impossibility. It's very hard for people to organize around a process, right? Redistricting election reform, that's a process. People will vote for a person. People will vote against a person. But it's to come out and reform a process. It's a tough ask in American politics. But sometimes it's a necessary ask. And if you want redistricting reform, you want to end the gerrymander, and I do, What you want is independent election commissions. There are lots of states that have independent election commissions. And to get one, it's easier in some states than it is in others. Like in New York, everything that is a proposal on the ballot goes through the legislature. So you got to wait for a constitutional convention, which happens every, what, 20 years. It's really hard. In California, it's a lot easier. Guess what? California has one. But to end gerrymandering in every state, I think this is the only thing that's going to happen because neither party is going to unilaterally disarm, especially the one with the artillery. The only solution I can think of will in fact involve an appreciable number of people engaging in a collective action, taking up about a half hour on a Tuesday every four years. That is the easiest cure I offer. Otherwise, it's just the inmates running the chicken coop. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the GIST's director of player personnel. Next week at this time, it's an Antoine Tig. 
an Anten twig every three weeks, but it's been more than three weeks, hasn't it? It's been a bit of uh, 19 Anten twigs. If you don't know what it is, or you'd like to just comment in any way on the three weeks of shows you'll have heard by then, go to mikepesca.com slash the gist. The gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.